When I was in college, my last summer, you know, I'd come home every summer uh, and spend two and a half or three months at my folks' house, and, uh, and I'd try and find a summer job. And it wasn't always an easy thing to do for just a couple, two and a half months or so. But one year, I got a job at Costco in Issaquah, uh, which is in the Seattle area. Issaquah, actually, is where Costco is headquartered. So it was pretty neat. I got to work across the street from Costco's headquarters, which means we were really under the microscope, because the executives would come in all the time, and you know, we'd have to be on our game. But what was my job at Costco in the summer uh, that year? It was pushing carts. Now, have you been to Costco before? First of all, does Costco have the world's largest carts? Yes, the answer is yes. Are they also the world's heaviest carts? Yes. And now, I, I'm, I'm going to say this in the bitterness of my soul. Does Costco have the world's rudest choppers who leaves the carts all over the parking lot? Yeah, they do. I'm sorry if you're convicted this morning. So, you know, I, I didn't mean to do that. But I got to tell you, when I'm out there pushing those carts, and we would have to, you, there are so many people coming in and out of Costco that you, you can't just kind of be at your ease, like pushing your cart down the road. You, you have to have like as many carts as you, they give you a rope. And they say, you can't push more than 10 carts, which means you better be pushing at least 10 carts. And then secondly, none of us are listening because we're like, the more carts I can push right now, you know, the, the less behind I'm going to fall. Because the truth of the matter is that when you're out there for eight hours, hours in the sun. I know it's only the Seattle sun, but it was hot to me back then. That's where I was from, all right? So just go easy on me. But we're out there in the bake, baking in the sun, pushing like 20 carts as best as we can, hoping that none of the supervisors will walk out and see us, or they'll walk out and go, oh my gosh, this guy needs help, and send someone out from inside. But, but what would end up happening is at the end of my shift every day, uh, I was often working the closing shift, and that would mean I'd have to go find all of the wayward carts, Right? We would easily clean out the cart bays, but there are carts that people have left all over the parking lot. Not just all over the parking lot, there's some in neighboring parking lots. And you're like, how'd they get over there? Who is the jerk who did this? And that's in the bitterness of my heart <laughs> at the end of the day where I was. I hate people. <laughs> They're horrible monsters who leave shopping carts everywhere. Fast forward a few years, and I graduated from college, and I started working at a bank. And I, it was a people-facing job again. But whereas with pushing carts, I was just seeing the horrible things that people were doing to me all day long, when I was at the bank, I felt like I have an opportunity to actually help people, whether it's help them figure out what to do with their money, help them get a loan to buy a new home, which is really exciting. I get to help my coworkers. See, my attitude is very different between the two jobs. Some of it was maturity. Some of it was that it's hard to have a good attitude pushing carts. But whatever it was, in one job, I left bitter at the end of the day, frustrated at what everyone had done to me. And at the second job, I went home feeling like I was a blessing to the people that I met that day. And you know, did you catch in the call of Abram? Remember, Abram is later renamed Abraham, so they're the same guy. Did you catch as Bruce, I mean Abraham, was talking to us how often that word blessing came up? Did you hear it in chapter 
12 here. This is the classic, this is called the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 12. And it in many ways is the covenant that every other covenant in the Bible is going to rely on. It's one of the most important passages in scripture. And this is the promise God makes. I will make you, Abram, into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. It's the covenant of blessing, isn't it? Even the individual promises, I will make your name great. He's blessing Abram. I will make you into a great nation is a blessing to Abram. Whoever curses you, I will curse is a blessing to Abram. I mean, it's, we don't really want to admit it, but we kind of want that a little bit in our lives. When people treat us badly, we want them to come to an understanding that that was a bad way of treating us. The problem is we usually look at everyone else and say, man, those people are such jerks without stopping. The, oh, oh, no, I don't want to remember that thing I did the other day. So we bring humility to that particular blessing. But the end, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That's God's purpose in his people. And if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are one of God's people, which means that God desires to bless the world through you. Is that the attitude that we take out into our daily lives? If I looked at my own life, I think I'd have to say, sometimes, sometimes it is. Uh, it's definitely not when I'm driving. If you ever want to know how close you are to being like Jesus, go take a drive and you'll know right away. Right? Because it's like pushing carts at Costco. You say, oh, that person just cut me off. You know, I'm going to get, I wish, you know, God rain fire down on the car in front of me for cutting me off. Right? Is that a blessing others mindset that we have? You know, when somebody pulls in front of you, I'm, I'm guilty of this. And I actually think of, you know, we live in a small enough community that I think I better drive carefully because someday the person I honk at is going to be someone who either goes to my church or lives in my community. They're going to be like, why is the pastor honking at me? And I just want to be clear, if I'm honking at you, it's because you deserve, no, no, not really. If, <laughs> if I'm honking at you, it's because I'm still becoming like Jesus and I'm not quite there yet. I don't only use the horn for emergencies. I won't ask you to raise your hand for this, but I imagine a lot of us don't only use the horn for emergencies. The horn isn't just like, oh no, watch out. It's also, I hate you. I hate you. What have you done to me? We're not like Jesus quite yet. We're still working on this. Are we being a blessing to the world in the various places that we go? On the road, even. Uh, I remember talking to somebody older and wiser than me once, and, uh, and I pointed out, oh, that guy's got a, a, a fish on the back, an ichthus on the back of his car, so we know he's a Christian. And the guy who's also a believer, and it's like one of my mentor sort of people, says, yeah, I can't do that in my car. I can't besmirch the name of Jesus by putting a, a fish on the back of my car. Got to move on from driving here. We got a whole sermon to get to. God wants to bless the world through Abram. He wants to bless the world through you and I. Jesus comes into the world to bless the world. So here's, here's the thing. We talk about how we're on, on a journey to Bethlehem. Right? And you notice you know, the sermon title today. I've already lost. Here it is. The sermon title today is On the Road to Bless the World which implies we haven't gotten there quite yet, doesn't it? 
And if we can put ourselves in Abraham's shoes, we need to remember he hasn't gotten there quite yet. He is the person through whom God will bless the world, but he's still on the road. He's still on the journey. It's not done. And the same is true for you and I today. So what does it take to be people who are on the road to bless the world? What do we need? Because if we're all honest with ourselves, we're doing our best, but we're not quite there, are we? How are Christians portrayed in the media today? Are they portrayed as a blessing to the world? And is it sometimes have we earned that bad coverage? Not always. Not always. Sometimes we have, haven't we? Whether it's I myself, I remember even when I was in high school and I wanted to go see a rated R movie with a friend of mine. I wasn't supposed to go see rated R movies. He picked up the phone and called my dad and said, hey, I'm, I'm going to be late. We're going to see a movie. And I lied about what movie we were going to go see. My dad watches these, by the way. Um, <clears throat> and, uh, and my friend that I was going to go with was not a Christian. And he said, oh, so that's how Christians live. It's not the only time in my life that's happened. Not there yet. How do we get closer? How do we do it better? You know, the amazing thing uh, about Abraham is if you go to Hebrews chapter 11, and this will kind of give the plot away a little bit. If you go to Hebrews chapter 11, this uh, passage, I don't remember who dubbed it this way, but uh, you might call this the Faith Hall of Fame. And in verse 8, by faith Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as, in, as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he had no idea where he was going. God said, kind of Canaan-ish, head out in that direction. But God, if you read the Genesis passages, God was guiding Abraham's steps day by day. Here now, this direction. Stop there for a while. Even though he didn't know where he was going, he went. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. God said, I will give you a land. And Abraham went into the land. And God said, oh, but not yet. You're just going to live here for a while. But there will be kings and other peoples here that will rule. You will be the sojourner, the immigrant. He says, how did he pull this off? He was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. He's on the journey. And he said, there is a good end to this journey. Let's take a closer look at Abraham's life. God calls Abraham, Abram at this point. He says, go down to the place I'm going to show you. So Abram packs up. This is an amazing act of faith. He packs everything up, gets all of his people, gets all of his stuff, gets all of his family, which is pretty small because he and his wife have never been able to have children. But even his nephew Lot wants to go with Abram. And they just, they head out. They start going. It's this amazing act of faith. And what's the next thing that happens? Well, they get all the way down. Uh, they, they get into the land of Canaan and there's a famine. So Abram says, well, he can't stay here. And he goes down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. This is uh, Genesis 12, verse 10. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. They'll kill me, but they'll let you live. Say you are my sister so that I will be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. 
Did Abram go into Egypt and think, God's got this? Or did he go into Egypt and say, dude, there was famine in Canaan. I'm not really sure just how far God's going to take me on this journey. I'm not even sure this wasn't a giant mistake in the first place. So he says, Sarai, lie. And of course, what happens is uh, the Egyptians did see that Sarai was a very beautiful woman. And Pharaoh says, well, she's nobody's wife, so she'll be in my harem. You know, I'll bring her out. She can be one of my wives. And Abram is stuck. He is lost. God's promises are disintegrating before his eyes until Pharaoh, uh, the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarai. And so Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me, he said. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Take her and go. (laughs) So Abram's faith kind of fell apart almost right away, didn't it? Let me tell you, on on the one hand, I think he's showing us we're not going to live in God's blessing without faith. It's just not going to happen. How can we say, God, I trust you're going to deliver me this great thing and then live as if that's not true at all? Will God really really bless his people? Will he really bless the world through us if we won't trust that, hey, God's got this moment handled, even if I don't understand what's going to happen? But here's the good news out of it as well. Because what happens with Abram? God protects him even from the failure of his faith. I think we need to hear both things this morning. Be be a person of faith and recognize that when your faith has failed, God will not let you go. When I was in college, I think it was, and working out my faith for myself in a lot of ways for the first time, I grew up in the church. I knew more about the Bible than anyone in my year, at my church, at my school. You know, to all intents and purposes, like I was the Christian who had it figured out. And yet I spent my college years praying, God, just don't let go of me. I don't know how you could want a person like me, but just don't let go. And I can tell you, he never did. I can also tell you that God changed that prayer over the course of my life. I remember looking up, and I've told you this before, but I remember looking up one day and thinking, I'm not praying that way anymore. God's changed something in my heart. He hasn't made me better so much as convinced me that he never will let me go. Both are present in Abram's story. Let's skip ahead to chapter 14. Lot, Abraham's, or Abram's nephew, has been traveling with him. And they get to a place in chapter 13 where they say, our, our households are too big. We're too rich. We can't, all of our animals are eating up all the grazing ground. We need to separate. And that's what they do. And Lot goes one way and Abram goes another. And Lot ends up near Sodom. You can tell that story is going to end well. But Lot, as he's down in Sodom, some foreign kings come in and they attack and they conquer and they plunder and they carry off Lot and his family and all of the possessions that they have and all the possessions of the, the, those kingdoms in that area. And when Abram hears about this, he says, I am going to go and do something. He goes to rescue Lot, and he does it. He equips his, the men in his household to fight. They go into battle. They win. Abram, just this one guy against several kings, they win the battle. 
they save Lot and all his stuff and they send him back to where he was from. But then at the end of the story, the king of, uh, the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. Because Abram didn't just rescue, didn't just rescue Lot and his family and his goods. Abram rescued all the people and all their families and all their goods. And the king of Sodom says, you can keep the wealth. You can keep the plunder. Just give me my people and we'll go back. And how does Abram respond? See, I think uh, that we expect Abram to respond. And maybe there's something in this that would respond by saying, thank you. You're right. I earned this. Right? I went to battle. You, you're the loser king. Right? You weren't able to save your people. You weren't able to save the stuff. Yeah, I'll take it. Or at the very least, you might say, oh, no, I don't need to take all of it, but maybe like 10%. Yo, give me the sort of the finder's fee. Like, I, I earned a reward. Right? See, if you're pushing carts at Costco and there's bitterness in your heart and there's I deserve in your heart, then that's the sort of response that we give. But when we go out and say, God has made us his people so that we can be a blessing. I mean, isn't this, a, in, remember again, God said to Abram, I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will make you wealthy. And he says, but you will also be a blessing to others. And what part of that does Abram grab onto? I'm going to be a blessing to these people. Abram says, with raised hand, I have sworn an oath to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich and foster that sort of bitterness or debt between us. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me to enter Eshkol and Mamre, let them have their share. Because I'm going to be a blessing. It takes faith too, doesn't it? Faith that God's got something better in mind for us. Faith that when God sets out to bless the world, that's actually something that's worth doing. Because sometimes we don't think it is, do we? In the abstract, we sort of do. But when it comes to the individual people, and we think, well, that person's hurt me, or that person's on the other side of the aisle, or you know, that group of folks, like they belong to a hostile country, or whatever it is, we say, well, we don't really need to bless the world. We'll just bless the people we like, or the people we think deserve it. But who was Abram talking to? The king of what again? Sodom. Was Sodom famous for being people who deserve blessing? No, and we're going to see uh, a little bit later in the book of Genesis. We're not going to cover it today. But if you keep reading here in the book of Genesis, you'll get to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and just how awful things had gotten there, just how undeserving of blessing those people were. But Abram says, God made me to be a blessing, and that's what I will be. We're going to skip this time a long way. We were in chapter 14. Now we're going to go all the way to chapter 21. God promised Abram, I'm going to make out of you a great nation. How is he going to do that when Abram is really old? He's about 90. Actually, by the time he does have uh, Isaac with Sarah, he's 100 years old. 
And Abram keeps going back and forth to God. Now he's called Abraham, by the way, just to make things extra confusing. But Abraham keeps going back and forth to God saying, hey, when are you going to give me uh, my baby? When are you going to give me my child by Sarah, the child of the promise? When's this going to happen? And we see there are even a couple of things where Abram seems to be, well, I don't know if God's going to follow through. So he appoints uh, a, an heir within his house, first of all, one of his servants that he really values. Then he, then he has a baby with another woman. Sarah actually says, hey, you know, here is my maidservant. You have a baby with her. And that was an acceptable thing in Abraham's day. If you, if a woman couldn't have her own baby, at least she could sort of have a surrogate baby through another person in her household. Of course, it didn't work out well because it just drove home for Sarah how childless she was. So they keep going and, and trying to, to take matters into their own hands, and God keeps saying, not yet, not yet, not yet. And finally, in chapter 21, now the Lord was gracious to Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. I love here how the focus goes off of Abraham and on to Sarah. Because Sarah was really the one who bore the shame. Sarah was really the one who couldn't make the most important contribution she could make in her culture and in her time. And God, as he's fulfilling his promises to bless the whole world, sees Sarah in her pain. And in blessing the world, he blesses Sarah. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time God had promised. And Abraham gave, gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. You know what that name Isaac means? You can show off Cal if you want. <laughs> Laughter. Laughter. He's named that for a number of reasons. He's named that in part because he's such a joy to his parents. But also because when God would promise, I'm going to give you a baby, Abraham laughed. Shall a child really be old, born to a guy as old as me? And Sarah laughed. After all of this time, will I really have a baby? He remembers all of their difficulty in trusting God and all of their joy in God fulfilling his promise. And let's go into chapter 22. Our guest Abraham mentioned this today. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. But God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain. I will show you. I mean, it's all coming apart at this moment, isn't it? It's all coming apart. And Abram, whose faith was as good as any human being had ever done it, but was nonetheless shaky for all of that. Abram, who had lied to the Egyptians and later lied to a Canaanite king, Abimelech, about Sarah being his wife or his sister. Abram, who kept trying to take matters into his own hands. How long, God? How long until you fulfill your promises? Who had Ishmael with Hagar, who uh, named another heir even before Ishmael came along because he wasn't totally sure that God was going to follow through. 
Abraham, God then says, okay, everything seems fine, doesn't it? But now I want you to sacrifice your son as a burnt offering. And if you read this passage, we, I can't do justice to it this morning, but it's in slow motion. You hear it even in verse 2, which I read, take your son, your only son, the son whom you love, and sacrifice him. And you get the sense of Abraham trudging toward the mountain where he's to offer Isaac, taking his time, treasuring these days and moments with Isaac. Abraham takes Isaac with him up the hill, up to the top of the mountain. They built the altar, and he put Isaac on it, and he himself, Abraham himself, carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Father? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And I get a picture here. If you read, if you go back to Hebrews and other places, you get the sense that Abraham believed this wasn't the end. That God was going to do something to save and redeem Isaac, even if it meant bringing him back from the dead. And I feel like I, you know, I can't be sure about this, but I think that when he says God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, there is that double meaning here. Of, yeah, it's you, Isaac, but also if God will do something, I don't know what it is. How far will your faith take you? C.S. Lewis once said that uh, when we sin, often it's because we say, I just couldn't stand it anymore. Right? I, the temptation was there, and I resisted as long as I could, and then I gave up, and I, I, I did what I wasn't supposed to do. And he says, that's not true. You didn't try as hard as you could have. The reason I know this is because there are other people who resist this temptation, and it wasn't any easier for them than it was for you. In our society, we especially like special pleading, don't we? Well, but you don't understand how hard things have been for me. You don't understand the life that I've lived. And I, what I'm not saying is that our, the lives we've lived don't matter. The pressures that come from, from previous decisions, good or bad in our lives, from, from the things our parents did right and the things our parents did wrong, I'm not saying these things don't matter at all. I am saying that we can still choose who we will be. Maybe think about it this way. Have you ever been really thirsty? Anybody here? Really thirsty. Well, what if we think about it like this? What if you wake up in the morning, as I often do, and there's so much to do that you kind of, you know, maybe you have breakfast, maybe you don't, maybe you remember to drink some water, maybe you don't. But let's say you get to lunchtime and you haven't had anything to drink. Are you going to be thirsty? I think so, yeah. And, and, and will you say, I want something to drink because I'm thirsty? I mean, I, I hope so. That's the only thing that would make sense, right? 
but can you go a little bit longer? Just because you're thirsty doesn't mean you'll die if you don't get water right now. What if you go all the way to the evening? You haven't had anything to drink. You're probably really thirsty by now, right? But you can go a little longer, can't you? What if you go a whole day? By the way, please don't do this. It's not healthy. But what if you go a whole day? You wake up the next morning and say, I'm so thirsty. Does that mean you can't go just a little bit longer without a drink? What if faith is a little bit like that? What if our determination to be obedient to God is a little bit like being thirsty? We say, ah, this is so tempting. I really want to give in. Does that mean we really can't go just a little bit farther? Or what if we say God's promise seems so far away? Does that really mean we can't go one more day? And you know what will carry us to the end of that? You know what will help us to say just a little bit farther? Well, if you've been hiking, you know. You get up in the hills, you start walking, because goodness knows we're not hiking in the valley, not in the summer. You get up in the hills, you start walking, and you don't just take a hike to nowhere, do you? You take a hike to someplace. You go to a lake or to a waterfall or to an overlook or something along those lines. And when you start getting tired and you think, gosh, I don't know if I want to go any farther, what do you do? Craig, what'd you do with the Boy Scouts? Yeah, you kept going. And you might have told them something like, and this is what I do with my kids, because the kids, you know, we've gone like 30 feet, and they're like, I'm so tired. You know, it's because they're children. It's not because there's anything wrong with them. They're just children. What do I tell them? I say, the, the place we're going will make all the walking worth it. And it's true. We, uh, we were at the coast uh, a little while ago, uh, just earlier this week. Kayla and I were talking about this the other day. And it's like, we were just at the coast not even a week ago. And she's like, it wasn't even a week ago? That's what it's like when you have a family, right? And time, we're just in time warp all the time. But uh, while we were there, we went into Montana de Oro. And we started hiking on one. We'd never been on this trail before. And it, we weren't even sure that it totally was a trail. But, but anyway, it wasn't a long walk. But, you know, of course, the kids are like, oh, I don't want to go any farther. And we, we said, no, we're just going to go a little bit farther. And we went through this gully. I think it was the bottom of the Hazard Canyon uh, Trail there, if you're familiar with that. We saw some people on horses. It was pretty neat. But we get into this gully, and the gully all of a sudden opens up onto a beach. And it's just this amazing, I mean, the bummer was that apparently all the world's seaweed and kelp had washed up on that beach the day before, and the smell was incredible. But we hiked up this little bluff, and we got to the top, and we were like, wow, this is beautiful, this is amazing. You know what I noticed? Is that when we were in the gully, and it wasn't very interesting, you know, we're all walking like, oh my gosh, <laughs> how much farther do we have to go? But when we got to the beach, and we thought, you know, well, we don't want to go down there because it's all the kelp, but... But that overlook right there, you know, and, and what did the kids do? What did the kids do when they saw the trail that would take them up? The kids who were tired and begging to stop just a moment before, what did they do? They ran. They ran. And then we got to the dunes, right, on the south end of Morro Bay. And, and the kids, you know, there's the dunes like this. And, you know, I'm looking at this dune and thinking, if we climb down this dune, we're going to have to climb back up it. No, thank you. But the children are like, wow, 
you know, running down the dune. And they're, I mean, they're falling. One of them got to the bottom of it, and they totally wiped out and fell on their face. And, you know, if they fell on their face anywhere else, they would have been like, ah, you know, crying and, you know, come, you know, comfort me. But they were so excited about where they were and that they could go back to the top of the dune and run back down. I'm like, what's wrong with you people? It looks like so much work. But it was worth it because of the end. And that's what Abraham, did you catch it in the book of Hebrews in chapter 11? It said Abraham was looking forward to a city built without hands, to the heavenly city that God was going to provide. And more and more, it started to change his life so that he was willing to take the journey and to go wherever God took him. He saw that God's plan to make me a blessing for the rest of the world is such an exciting future that it's changing the way I see and understand the world around me, the things that are required of me, what God asks of me because he is taking me somewhere good. And if you need to be reassured a little bit this morning, Abraham and Isaac are walking up the mountain. Abraham is getting ready. As a matter of fact, it says when they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. Right? Again, slow motion. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took his knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Don't do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Now, I think a psychologist would have an awful lot to say about the impact of these events on Isaac and Abraham and all of these things. Maybe not qualified or have the time to weigh, wade into all of that this morning. But here's what I do want to point out. God doesn't take Isaac. He doesn't take away the promise. He doesn't undo the good that he's given to us. Nothing is ever lost that won't be restored and returned. That's why the cross is empty, folks. Because what goes there is always given back. We are on the road to blessing the world. Are we going to adopt the attitude of Abraham as we do that? Say what God has for this world in blessing it through me is worth whatever sacrifice I have to make in the meantime. As we said, we're on the road, on the journey. We're not there yet. So maybe the question instead of, are you ready to leap to the end, is will you take a step today? 